Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And I'm Bo, and as always, I hope your day is going well. I hope the aches and pains are bearable, and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I say that meaning that you can you can see that last car payment. You can see that child is going to graduate. And your life is full of purpose and commitment. Well, we're coming down to the last week of Black History Month. And I must say, I've been entertained and I've learned a few things. But that's what Black History Month is supposed to do for us, right? And here's the thing. Everybody needs to do their own research. My information is just a starting point. I don't expect everyone to agree or believe my content. I do expect people to research and try to put the pieces together for themselves. Because I'm not a teacher, I'm an awakener. And with that being said, you know what time it is. Let's go back and allow me 15 or 20 minutes of your precious time because our people are dying from the lack of knowledge. When the Civil War began, Recruiters for the Union Army refused to accept African-American volunteers. Union officials, including President Abraham Lincoln, feared that the presence of blacks in the army might alienate conservative white northerners as well as the citizens of the border states of Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky, and Delaware, where slavery was still legal and many Union soldiers and civilians doubted that black men possessed the courage or skill needed to fight. Boy, as Malcolm X might say, were they hoodwinked. The actions of African Americans, as well as a growing need for manpower, prompted Union generals and politicians gradually to adopt more inclusive policies. The first step toward black military service came in the second month of the war at Fort Monroe on the Virginia Peninsula. In May of 1861, three enslaved men from near Hampton fled to the Union-occupied fortress after their owner, a Confederate officer, had ordered them to work on an artillery battery at Sewell's Point. Union General Benjamin Butler called them contraband of war and employed them as laborers. Now, now Congress ratified Butler's decision by passing the first Compensation Act and the Department of War and the Department of Navy both authorized the employment of confiscated slaves as wage laborers. Even as the policy of using African Americans as laborers gained increasing acceptance in the North, the question of enrolling them as soldiers remained controversial. 
Abolitionists, especially the former slave Frederick Douglass, urged the Lincoln administration to arm African Americans, but Lincoln refused. Some members of the military attempted to recruit African Americans anyway, and in the spring of 1862, Union General David Hunter organized a regiment of African Americans by recruiting men from Union-occupied plantations in the Sea Islands of South Carolina. When the news of Hunter's project reached Washington, D.C., however, the president and the War Department refused to grant Hunter authorization to enroll the men. Then during the summer of 1862, James Lane, an abolitionist senator from Kansas, organized the first Kansas Colored Volunteers, ignoring orders to enroll white troops only. Later that summer, the members of several free black militia regiments in New Orleans, known as the Louisiana Native Guards, offered their services to the Union authorities. General Benjamin Butler, now commanding in the city, eventually accepted their offer to serve. As Hunter, Lane, and Butler built their regiments in the field, Congress moved toward providing permission from Washington. On July 17, 1862, Congress passed the Second Confiscation Act and the Militia Act, both of which authorized the president to employ African Americans as workers or soldiers. But Lincoln remained noncommittal. But in August, his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton ordered Union General Rufus Saxton to organize a regiment of black soldiers in the South Carolina Sea Islands on an experimental basis. And by the end of the year, Saxton had successfully raised the first South Carolina colored volunteers and the regiment had participated in raids on the Atlantic coast. Farther west, James Lane's regiments also fought in some skirmishes during the autumn of 1862. The final Emancipation Proclamation, issued on January 1, 1863, explicitly authorized all black men to enlist as soldiers in the army. And in the months that followed, recruiting moved forward at a rapid pace. In March 1863, Staten ordered Adjutant General Lorenzo Thomas to the Mississippi Valley to recruit black men from contraband camps and abandoned plantations. By the end of the war, Thomas's efforts had yielded as many as 70 black regiments. In the meantime, northern states opened recruiting stations to African Americans. With Massachusetts as one of the first states to act, organizing the 54th Massachusetts Infantry, a regiment filled with free blacks from across the North and former slaves from the South. Frederick Douglass acted as a recruiting agent, and his sons, Charles and Louis Douglass, joined the regiment. 
The 54th was led by Colonel Robert Shaw, a member of a prominent family of abolitionists in Boston. As recruiting began in earnest, the United States government took steps to centralize the administration of its new black regiments. On May the 22nd, 1863, the War Department organized the Bureau for Colored Troops under the leadership of Major Charles Foster. The Bureau issued guidelines for black regiments, staffed the units with officers, and oversaw recruiting and enrollment. At that time, units received a regimental number under the designation USCT, which stood for United States Colored Troops. For example, the 1st South Carolina became the 33rd USCT, and the 1st Kansas Colored Volunteers became the 79th USCT. An exception was made for the 54th and the 55th Massachusetts Infantry Regiments, both of which were allowed to keep their state designations and remain in state service. Now, the Bureau for Colored Troops brought efficiency to the USCT regiments, but not always equitable treatment. Despite objections from black leaders, the Bureau insisted on assigning only white men to commissioned officer positions. Although a small number of black soldiers received commissions by the end of the war, including Virginia-born Martin Delaney, and many served as non-commissioned officers, the USCT remained primarily an organization led by whites. Having someone to look down on is always a must, is it not? You see, my friends, officials in the Army and in the government itself also initially assumed that black regiments would rarely, if ever, be used in combat. And because of that, black soldiers endured a disproportionate share of labor duty. The assumption that black soldiers were workers, not fighters, led to unequal pay. Stanton initially indicated that black soldiers would be paid $13 per month which was the wage that white soldiers received. But in the Militia Act of 1862, Congress set the pay for black soldiers at $10 per month, $3 of which could be in clothing, which was the rate for military laborers. We were also denied recruitment bounties routinely offered to white soldiers and were rarely eligible to collect aid for dependents, a benefit that state legislation often made available to white men serving in the ranks. Now, Stanton insisted he opposed unequal pay, but he did nothing to challenge Congress's unequitable legislation. Black soldiers themselves, however, demanded equal treatment. In the Sea Islands, some members of the 1st South Carolina 33rd USCT stacked their arms and refused to serve until they received equal pay. There we are again, protesting. 
And that protest led to the court martial and execution of at least one soldier. And the men of the 54th and 55th Massachusetts regiments refused to accept any pay until they received equal pay. They even rejected a proposed compromise in which the Massachusetts state government would have made up the difference in the salary. The black soldiers' protests succeeded. In June 1864, Congress passed a bill equalizing pay retroactive to January 1864 for all men who had been free at the start of the war. The Enrollment Act of March the 3rd, 1865, finally granted full and equal back pay for all black soldiers. Black troops in Virginia also demanded equal treatment. In 1864, at the Overture Hospital, a facility for both USCT and freedmen in Alexander, Soldiers protested because the superintendent of contrabands ordered deceased soldiers to be buried in the nearby contraband and freedmen's cemetery rather than in the soldier's cemetery, now the Alexandra National Cemetery. Burial in the freedmen's cemetery also effectively denied the USCT military honors. More than 400 USCT patients at the hospital signed a protest petition demanding to be accorded full status and respect as soldiers and then began to be buried in the soldiers' cemetery. By 1864, black troops had earned the grudging respect of their white comrades. In May, a large number of black soldiers entered Virginia for the first time. In one of their first engagements in the state, on May the 24th, 1864, a Union force composed mostly of black troops repulsed Confederate General Fitzhugh Lee's cavalry at the Battle of Wilson Wharf also known as Fort Pocahontas. Black regiments remained present in the Army of the James under Benjamin Butler, which fought in the trenches at Bermuda 100 and in Ambrose Burnside's Ninth Corps, which marched with the Army of the Potomac during Ulysses S. Grant's overland campaign. Black troops were among the first to seize outlying Confederate works at Petersburg when the Union Army made an unsuccessful push to capture the city in June 1864. The presence of African-American soldiers on the battlefields afforded them opportunities to win glory and acceptance, but also exposed them to racially motivated violence. When the United States Congress first authorized black military service in the summer of 1862, the Confederate War Department responded with General Order No. 60, issued on August 21, 1862. The order indicated that the Confederacy would not treat black 
men as soldiers, but would instead view them as slaves in a state of insurrection, making them liable to execution or sell into slavery. White officers captured while leading or training black troops would be tried for a felony for which they could receive the death penalty. Confederate President Jefferson Davis and the Confederate Congress ratified these policies in subsequent pronouncements. On July the 30th, 1863, the Lincoln administration ordered retaliation for the mistreatment of black prisoners, pledging to execute one prisoner of war for every member of the USCT sentenced to death and to put captured Confederates to hard labor for any black soldier sold into slavery. In 1864, the Confederate government's refusal to exchange black prisoners led to a breakdown in the practice of parole and exchange for white prisoners of war. In the meantime, atrocities occurred on the battlefield. On April 12, 1864, Congress Calvary, under the command of Nathan Forrest, overran an interracial Union garrison at Fort Pillow, Tennessee, on the Mississippi River. Many Union troops, mostly black soldiers, were shot down as they attempted to surrender. Similar incidents occurred at the Battle of Poison Springs, Arkansas in April 1864 and at the Battle of the Crater in Virginia. At the town of Saltsville, Virginia, Confederate soldiers executed scores of black prisoners of war after a battle in the vicinity on October the 2nd, 1864, in what is often regarded as the second most deadly massacre of black troops by Confederates after Fort Pillow. The victims included sick and wounded men who had fallen into Confederate hands. Well, my friends, if you want to know more about our ancestors fighting as soldiers in the Civil War, on your union side, I suggest that you research it yourself because I can tell it to you and you can hear it, but if you research it and read it, you will learn it. We have fought in every war this country has been in and still the atrocities against us continue. Oh sure, we're supposed to be so-called integrated but yet they do not want us to vote. And it's supposed to be justice for one and all. But although we only control 13% of the population of the United States, our incarcerated numbers is about 40%. And that music tells me that it is once more that time. But before I go, I will leave you with this little message. If we stand tall, it is because we stand on the soldiers of many ancestors. And the most potent weapon in the world is an educated black man. Educate our sons and they shall change the foundation of humanity. Until next time, it's been my honor. <laughs>